0: planted a vision in, in my heart uh, many years ago I had I felt called into the area of ministry but I was also very involved early on in our life and marriage and let me just introduce you the um, let's see I was just and getting the dog already it was, Okay. I brought my much better half to uh, my completer um, Valerie wife of our six children and grandmother of grandmother, our seven grandchildren and uh we started out in a little corner of Washington State 35 years ago, uh, just to do what God called us to do and uh, serve in, in ministry. Uh, but I've also had a passion for the issues of righteousness in our culture. And my dad was I'm, I, I, I if there was a walking caricature, caricature of uh, Jeff Foxworthy and. and essential religious right. I Um he could have written all his material coming, going, just hanging around my family up there in Washington State. Uh, for what's a, what? Is a, you know, this is a redneck. Uh, I grew up in a rural area. My dad was a logger. Um, I tell her I my I was saved the Lord, brought me in, in through my now wife uh, in the Assemblies of God Church, and I tell folks all the time we. In my family, and I, when I was growing up, we spoke in tongues, but it was not a heavenly language. And so, you know, it was a pretty rough uh, area growing up in. But uh, it was it was still a, a time where much of a, you know, growing up, we were protected. I grew up out in, in a much in an area uh, rural. Uh, in fact, we lived on 17 acres that bordered 10,000 acres of timberland. And just 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 a time and an era where uh, it was just uh, simple. But I uh, didn't really have any spiritual roots along the way. I uh, had a little, uh, my third grade teacher, had a little Bible study at her house on a Saturday. I was invited to, and, I'll, and what I distinctly remember was asking Jesus into my heart that day. I uh, didn't go to church after that. I didn't, didn't grow up in church. Uh, I won't go in depth into that, but I can just tell you, looking back now, I realized that when I asked Jesus into my heart that day, He came and He waited. And the Holy Spirit was there guiding me, and keeping me from some, some, Things that I look back through those years, and it was only him in my life keeping me from causing a lot of harm, and, and uh, did a lot of stupid things anyway, uh, younger. But but he kept me in his hand all the way through, and then used a uh, so folks used a, a soft church softball league and a beautiful woman to bring me fully into the fold. And but along that way, there was my dad was a John Bircher. Those of you who know what that is, John Birch Society. He was just one of those that was in the, in the six, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s. He brought all this stuff home. And I've always been a reading addict. and I just love to read. So I just read all this stuff. I learned to love the Constitution, learned to lot learn all these things about our, our nation, about communism, globalism, all these things. When I was in grade school and junior high, I know it's kind of sick, isn't it? And uh, so while all the kids were reading other stuff, I was reading things like the, the Declaration of Interdependence. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but when I came to the Lord and really gave my heart to Him, there was one passion I really felt called into, and that was the pro-life. Arena, And as I began to push my church and others, and we moved to the state capital of Olympia, Washington, which is kind of their, our equivalent up there of Austin, uh, I began to find this great resistance in the church to just doing simple things. Uh, and this was, again, the early 80s uh, of getting involved in pro-life ballot measures or other things, and, and it, it really stumped me because I just assumed when I came to Christ that that meant all of me. And my role as an American citizen was part of my walk as, as a Christian as a follower of Christ I wasn't smart enough or trained enough or educated enough yet to, to know better so I pushed outward under that assumption but kept running into the wall of separation but the wall was not, was not put up by the ACLU the wall wasn't put up by the federal government it wasn't put up by Lyndon Johnson the wall was put up by the church. Mm-hmm. We separated ourselves from the culture of the government long before anything in the laws did. That may surprise some of you. But all of you in this, most of you in the room, or we look back in the years and you know what I'm talking about. Because as, as I've grown now through those years and, and learned and studied and talked and, and looked back, what we saw is, is the church pulling away from our role as a cultural influence decades ago and in their, in, in dramatically in the in early part of the 20th century after the Scopes trial in particular. But what we realized was the voice of the only source of truth that has the, has the hope of redeeming anything was withdrawn from the very most important field of battle in our nation. Now, is anybody surprised that the consequences are what they are? And I and, and through these 35 years as God has called me into this, we've been I've uh, been involved in pretty much every level of political activity. Uh, I was I've been to probably over 30 uh, county, district, state, and national Republican conventions as a as a delegate. I was a chairman of our delegation from Washington State to the national the national convention in '96. Been involved in campaigns pretty much at every level, and so I've done all that. I, I mean. You name it, the Lord has allowed me to be, be involved in things far beyond anything I would have envisioned. But one thing I could never get away from, you know, I kept pushing the church, saying, we got to be here. And but, but along the way, I realized that our why was broken. And that I realized more and more, as, and as we all know, you don't know what you don't know until you know what you don't know. Right? As I began to learn things, I began to see, especially out of Scripture, in history. being I mean, a the study of Francis Schaeffer and some of the, the the great writings of our church history, and the role that, the, that not just the prophets of old, but great leaders in the past centuries of the church have played in impacting justice, impacting laws. And, things that, and I'm just thinking, why is it that we that we have accepted some premise that we no longer have a role there? What's missing? And we've done, I've done, get out the vote things for 30 plus years, as, as we're talking about here. It's it's just one of those things will be every election cycle but how many somebody mentioned Raphael's name Raphael Cruz's name I know Raphael's been here great man and, and Raphael consistently uses these this figures percentages that you know 50% of Christians aren't registered to vote and 50% of those that are don't vote right and as a standard general that obviously fluctuates but over those 30 I've been hearing that statistic for over 30 years now I'm not the smartest guy in the room I, I'm just not but even I can figure out that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, mm-hmm. that's called what? Yes. Because materially, nothing has changed in the behavior of the majority of those calling themselves Christians in our voting patterns. So I'm a I'm a fixer. Mm-hmm. Which kind of I was on my I spent my whole life through college training for law enforcement, criminal justice, and that's my education. Uh, part of my tent making through my through, right, growing up years as well as college and then years beyond that uh, was in in, uh, in auto repair uh, uh, cer- uh, Certified auto technician So I want to know who done it and how you fix it and what's broke So when you sit back and say well, what, what's what's the problem here? Why and I begin to ask when I was the national field director for a group called Christian Coalition as I began to analyze Okay, well, this is our objective here, is to increase the evangelical vote. What do we got to do? And then ultimately, it's, it's a matter of motivation, really, isn't it? We all do, do what we want to do every day. We get up and we do what's important to us. We don't have everything that's important to us. Uh, we all get busy and all those things, but let's face it, we, we make priority decisions every day. When we decide not to vote, and believe me, Christians decide not to vote, then what's the why? What's the why we can rationalize and, and decide it? Because... We don't do it. The figures don't lie. We all know what the primary turnout was, right? And we all know what the primary runoff turnout was. We all know what the general election likely turnout was. And by the way, those are low single digits, low single digits. So how is it that over ninety percent of people, and, and I'm talking, I'm just picking on Christians. Okay, I'm not forgetting. I'm, the world is is the world, and they've got to deal with their own mess. And we're, we're here to redeem that. That's they have an excuse, you not know? And I finally came down to one conclusion, and this is what back to the circle of why I realized after all these years I had to focus solely on pastors and here's why because the teaching and the training of the why was not coming from the pulpits. It just wasn't any of the pulpits. We weren't equipping our own people biblically then historically then informationally on our role as citizens and so, so again, to see, well, look—if, if, in other words, if pastors, and we had lots of examples, and even in this room are examples of that, but I, early on, I began to run to pastors who really did get it, and those little pastors made a difference. Uh, this one tiny little church in Olympia where we uh, began to interface with, and the church that I was part of was over 2,000 people. I was a mega church in Olympia, Washington, especially in those days. The largest Protestant church in the city. Couldn't get anything done in that church. Smack into the deacons and the wall of we don't do that here. This other church was involved in precinct chairs, delegates, pro-life, all over the place. And that church ran about 75 on Sunday morning. And again, I'm the smartest guy if I can figure out. It's not about the numbers, it's about the commitment. So I began to realize, okay, we don't we don't need we don't be big numbers, we just need to find the, the those who are called, we're gonna find the Gideons. But also how do we reach more? What are what are the what's the objections that pastors have? And this then let's kind of push past the objections to, let's answer those, then to be able to separate the sheep from the goats. And pastors, we all know there's the sheep and the goats. And that means those that are truly called and truly have a heart for the kingdom and really have a heart for the word, and those who are just occupying the whole and so we wanted to find out those that really have the right heart and are, are called to kingdom work and are willing to engage and then find a way to empower them to empower the people because all these organizations out there weren't getting it done they weren't going into the church because they weren't there to serve the church they were there to kind of use the church as a, as a means toward a political objective and that's even the good ones I'm not picking on anybody I pick on everybody uh, because they all have their own but the church is the church and it transcends all of that. It transcends time, transcends nations. And what I realized and as part works on those organizations were they didn't see the church as the universal eternal church of Jesus Christ triumphant. They saw it as really as a means of a political apparatus toward an end. I, one of our leaders that I used to work with had a phrase that used to drive me crazy. He said, we just want to seat at the table. Think about that for a minute. We, we, you know, just like with the AFL CIO and the Republican Party and the Democrat Party and the Tea Party, and those, you know, the church of Jesus Christ just wants a seat at the table. And I'm sorry, my father built the table, he owns the table. Yeah. Okay, so, and if that doesn't, and, and if the problem is anymore, we have, we have allowed ourselves to be talked into this little corner of, you know, you be good little Christians over here and just keep your, your your religion, your church, and your Jesus Christ and your Word of God. In your, in your buildings where it's, where it's supposed to be teacher Sunday schools but don't you dare bring it to city council right don't you dare bring it to the legislature let me ask you this is this word true only for those who believe is it it's truth right so if it's truth it's true truth it's his truth then I don't care whether you believe it or not. That's your problem. Okay? So that's that's between you and him. But my call is to present it. And what does it say? The word will not return void. But we withdrew the word. And so when we look at the whole framework of this, I this is what this session, and I'm not gonna go through all this, I just want to give you a little quick snapshot of this. Part of what we formulated when we started the pastor council, one of the major things that I really set about to do, because one of one of the really burdens that I had was that everything I'd been involved in as part of the evangelical, religious right, pro-life, pro-family movement for 30 years was... And and you can go to events anywhere in the country. And I've been to events all over the country, including Washington, D.C. or major cities all over, put on by organizations that we all are familiar with. And, and we all see it the same thing. They are 90 to 100% white. And more and more they are well over 50%, usually 70 or 80%, those who look like this. Right? I'm now old, codger. I was young, and now I'm old. We, we're not right. reaching. We're not. We're not building. And we're actually. We're actually have, have limited the scope and reach of what we knew to be right and good for this nation because we weren't breaking boundaries and building bridges and reaching out to others. They didn't look like us in the church of Jesus Christ. So we started out reaching pastors, so we had we have every color, and now our theme became every color every corner. And by that very first meeting, we had we had black pastors, spank pastors, Asian pastors, white pastors of different denominations, and they said this is our call. If you believe this, then let's come together. We we'll can fuss about our doctrines later. Now there are some distinctions and some things that work that if you don't agree. Um, you say that you're a man of the word, but you don't you don't interpret it correctly. We'll find that out later. We've never, and it always has. It's it's self cleansed it along the way. We've never, I've never asked anybody to leave. They just leave um, because we're, we're we adhere to this firmly in the sense of, and, and let me just give you a quick example. But along the way, and there's a booklet here. I'd like you to take with you. About two years ago, to 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 our pastors and some of our supporters, I felt is important to kind of show them okay, guys we're not just about the bathroom bill. we're not just about fighting the lgbt we've, we've been doing this for 15 years and we have been involved in everything from inner city juvenile justice issues to fighting the city on a drainage fee which would have destroyed churches all over the city of houston we have worked with the court systems and work with law enforcement we've deal of course now with our issues of foster care reform and human trafficking so this is about being the church and we have been on the ground in so many different ways through this thing. Stand up against Planned Parenthood, of course, when they opened up their monstrosity. But let's um, take one of those and just, just to see some of, the, some of the snapshot of just what Mark was talking about. This isn't about politics. In fact, there's a booklet we produced. We're doing, doing a reprint right now. we we'll I have some today. Yeah, it's called It's Not Politics, It's Ministry. And here's where, here's where this call comes in. I'm just going to do a very quick overview of this, I'm not going to go. We, we do we do an institute in American Christian Citizenship, as you see there, and and the really the birth of that was primarily as a result. I began to talk to our Hispanic pastors and ask them, why aren't your people participating? Why aren't more of the Hispanic churches and Hispanic people both active as well as voting? We all know the demographics are that in Harris County, the Hispanics actually majority now, and there's a, and so, the, but they're also the, the single lowest turnout of any of the voting block. So I'm going to ask him, what do you think the why? As well, it, 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 as I began to hear this, it was common sense really, because when you think about the fact that uh, the vast majority that we're talking about come from South of Central America, that come from countries that are totalitarian, socialist, oppressive, of, of various forms, none of which do they have a voice. Most of which, and in fact, all of which are if you stand up and speak out against those in authority, you're probably going to disappear. I mean so there's a great disconnect of any sense of ownership or participation in governing from, from, from any of these countries, even those who've been through the naturalization process. And I've talked to a number of them in the query. So I realized we need, to, we need to back up here and say, no, no, in this country, you're the government. We, we, that's part of our kind of DNA as, a, as, a, as a people that are born here. And we're not even participating well enough. So we, we formed the, this institute and uh, began to do this teaching, three-session teaching at these at our Hispanic pastor groups. And the, the response was so overwhelming, we've continued to grow every year. And you know, I do three sessions, and the first one is the, this one, the biblical basis of civil government. The second one is from the, mag, the flow of freedom from the Magna Carta to the Constitution. And the third one is we are the government. And they basically just walks through, starting from Scripture. And I realized, and honestly, uh, I've done just this one session in, in different settings, all as a standalone. And I love it, because if you can't get this, by the end of this one, and, and this there's so, as we well know, there's so much more. But I have there's about 15 Scriptures that we put and we cover here, starting from Genesis 9-6, walking through. And if you can't understand by the end that Jesus was telling the truth, when he gave the preamble to the Great Commission, then you're just flat missing something. The rest of it isn't going to make any sense. By the way, what's the preamble to the Great Commission? All Matthew, 8, Matthew 28, 18. All authority, Remember? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All Praise God. so got it right. So many, you'd be surprised at how many, in fact, almost universally, almost most <clears throat> times where I throw that out there, it's the people naturally start with, go therefore. But that's not what he said. When he began to speak to them, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Why did he say that? And also, why in John 19, 10 did he tell Pilate? When Pilate said, Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said, You have no authority over me except that which has been given to you from heaven above. And in his final prayer in the garden, John 17. We kind of focus on the unity side of that, John 17. But he starts out saying, Father, you have given me all authority. Why did he keep saying that? And what does that mean? Guys, we know what it means. It means what it says. All means all. And authority, Exercia means authority. In Romans 13, he gave us a picture of what that means in terms of applying to civil government. So his, so his all authority over all things at all times comes from the throne of God through Jesus Christ. And then, by the way, that doesn't mean if you're not a follower of Christ, it doesn't count. Same as a word, right? So that means that all authority, all legitimate authority, all authority of all times comes from him through Christ. And in this country, we are the carriers of his authority. And his followers all over the world are the carriers of his authority to do his work. But part of that work in this country is we get to govern ourselves. We get to use his authority, and it's given to us. Now, I didn't bring it today, and this is one setting where it would have been very comfortable to do. I've done it in settings where it wasn't as comfortable to do. When I get to that point in that presentation, I say, you know, in Romans 13, he says all authorities have been ordained by God, right? Walk through that Romans 13 passage. It says, for it is a minister of good. Well, that word minister is What? The word, the word Greek is diakonos. Does that sound familiar? The word you use? Deacon, servant, minister. Who would have thought government was a minister? Right? I'm here, I'm, the, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help right? As Reagan said. But the truth is it was designed by God to do just that, a minister of good for those who do good. But it says do you not want do you want to not be afraid of the authorities? Then do what is right. Because what it is a minister of wrath? Vengeance. It does not bear the sword for nothing, right? What it says, and make it up. Well, we don't. Uh, at, so at this point, I pull. I reach out and pull what I what I call Frank, and that's my nine millimeter. I laid it on the table. We don't carry swords anymore. Police don't carry swords anymore. Our military don't carry swords anymore. When those officers are out there, or they're out there doing their work enforcing the, the laws, they're carrying. Uh, something like an m sixteen or or a nine millimeter or, or something of the similar on you know, their taste. The fact of the matter is that's the sign of Romans 13 today. Now, what does that mean in regards to all this? That means that governing governments legitimately by God has been given lethal force to do what? To protect the innocent, and to punish the evildoer. Real simple. That's the foundational purpose of government authority. Now, when you wrap it all up into history and, and the constitution and all this, it still comes down to some, some fundamental things. But but righteously and legitimately, what that means is this. That means Christians vote one of three ways. And, and my assertion is, and I'll say this until I'm until I'm home, every Christian votes. Every Christian votes. In this country, if you're if you're an eligible adult over 18, you vote. And here's how you do it. There's one of four ways. First way is you're not registered, and you just basically take your gun and you toss it into a crowd. I don't have anything to do with it. Uh, it's not registered in my name. I don't know anything about it. You can have it. Go do what you want with it. And we give that gun to whoever can grab it first. How does that work? When that person grabs a gun and, goes and does harm with it, they may not be able to trace it back to me but am I going to stand before God one day to be accountable for that harm second way is we're, the gun's registered in my name when I sit there on the table but I say you know what I, I've got a lot of things to do I'm busy I've got more important things to do so I'm just going to walk over I'm going to sit on the floor and I'm going to go out the it and I walk out the door and I just leave it laying there somebody comes along and says fuck wow, i and they pick it up and go use it they may use it for good they may use it for evil Whose gun is it? And who's it who's registered to? If he commits a crime, he's going to jail. But they trace that gun back to me, and I've negligently committed an act of a, of a crime by leaving it in a position where it could be taken like that. I'm going to jail, too. Why is that? Because I'm entrusted with that weapon, right? I'm responsible. Pastors, most of you know or have done services for families. We had a child shot and killed because of playing with a weapon. Right? Whose fault was that? So that's that's option number two. Option number three is we say, well, you know, I, I think it's important I do something with this, Bradley. but you know, Mark, you're a pretty good looking guy, and I'd like the way you talk, and you know, I think we think generally think the same way. And um, you know, I think we went on the same party, so I'm gonna give you my gun. Amen. Right? No, I don't know anything about him. Have that before, met before? Or I, maybe I saw him on a commercial, but hey, looks good to me. I, all the outside looks great. What I hear looks great. It sounds great, right? So I'm just going to give him my gun. Is that the biblical standard? The outward appearance? Well, let's go to the fourth way, what we like to call the right way. And that is we go to Exodus 18.21, just what Jethro told Moses when the people were lined up just like at the Department of Motor Vehicles from morning till night, right? That was a precursor to all of our all of our registration lines here today. And, and, and Jethro came to Moses and said, what, well, you're wearing out the people. You're wearing out yourself. This isn't good. So do this. From among the people, choose able men who, love the tr- who fear God, who love the truth, and who hate dishonest gain, right? It's Exodus 18.21. He said, and then assign them over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, over tens. So break that down, delegate these lower jurisdictions. And if the, this one can't solve it, he kicks it upstairs. Right? Does that kind of sound like an appellate process? And he said, Moses, you're the Supreme Court. Okay, you say that to the, the toughest ones for yourself. What was he doing? Well, first of all, he set the standard. Don't put somebody who's only able to, go to, to judge over ten, put him over a thousand. Some, he said, able That's. I always find that real curious that that was the first words in that passage, not go, not fear God. It was actually able So the the capable, so qualification, their 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 relationship with God, their integrity and character, and their core philosophy trump all other things. Now, so what? So that's at least where we start, right? That's the standard. So if I'm going to hand my gun to somebody, I will say, "Okay, is this person able?" to do this, what I'm giving him this to do? Is he capable of handling my lethal weapon to do what God designed it to do? Is he, is, he, is he able? Secondly, is this a man of God? A woman of God? Is that evident in their life? Is it not just coming out of their mouth? Can I can I just measure it just like we do with anybody else? Measure the fruits. Okay. Third, is a person of integrity. Not all Christians are Honest or above board, and all we do things. Unfortunately, we all know that to be the case. We have to. So, somebody comes and and trust me, anybody who's been involved in politics very long, they've all, all had somebody come to you under the premise that, hey, I love Jesus, so I love the Lord, I'm a real Christian, and, and you should vote for me. And that's, and I'll probably take that person most of the time and put them at the bottom of the list. And then, just because they haven't earned their way to show. That just that I'm sorry that may get you across the starting line if it's true, but I'm going to see the rest of this as well. So finally, what that means is what we're doing, are charged with doing in this country with our vote, is entrusting that God's authority with lethal force behind it to somebody else to do His work of righteousness and justice, protecting us and punch the wicked every single election, every time. So we do we all do one of those four things. The question is which one. So here's my question to us and pastors. This is why we've charged this around to the pulpits. Who's going to teach them that? I've been at this for a long time. I've been in seminars, workshops. I've read vociferously. I love to read love history. There's a lot of great materials out there. But that this one set of principles starting from Scripture, Genesis 9-6, where God told Noah, if man sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed because... He is made in the likeness of God. He established the framework of the highest crime to be met with the highest penalty Mm -hmm. as the the legitimate means of showing the value of the life that he created in his likeness, in his image. All the way through to the the self-governing tribes of Israel. And then remember in 1 Samuel, chapter 8, when Samuel was trying to retire, the sons have taken over, and guess what? We don't know how, that, how well that worked, unfortunately. So the people came. To Samuel and said, hey, "This isn't working. We want a king." Samuel takes it to God. God tells it, him, hey, "It's okay. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So give them what they want, and then tell them." And, and if you, I love the list in Roman and First uh, Samuel eight, because he goes over the people. He says, "And here's what's going to happen when you have a king." That king is going to take your sons and your daughters, and put him in his, in his household, and run before his, chari- his chariots. He's going to take your your prop, your, your fruit from your fields. And you. He's going to tax you. He's going all this whole list, which very much sounds like, like government of all ages, right? The king takes. So when the people want to nerf the king, they got one. From that point until 1776, the Declaration of Independence, in 1789, the ratification of our Constitution. Self-government was fundamentally lost to the world, but now we have it back. We've been given it as a gift to us. Why is it a business of the church? We're just supposed to be here to reach the lost, to, to, to minister to the hurting, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, right? Government has nothing to do with any of that, right? That's the mindset that we are trying to reverse and turn around. Because the truth matter is, and I had to ask this, answer this question. All this, all the while, the first time we approach any pastor, you need to, you need to lead on this, and we need to lead together. And ultimately, it's because Scripture requires us to; it's a mandate. It's there. It is part of the ministry, part of the ministry of every local church. That's what was missing. As church pastors go, you know, I don't get involved in politics. I don't, I don't do that stuff. Uh, we're just here to, again, worry about the soul, worry about the, you know, the. the, you know, the Serve the people, all the things we do. Um, but for some reason, we bought this line, that this this track over here. God didn't care about even though He ordained it, created it, and put it in place for this. So, because we abdicated our role in it, why would we expect government politics not to be dirty and ugly? It has to be inevitably because it's about one thing. Remember that word, authority, right? See, the Satan understands very well. He always has in the beginning. It's what he wants. It's what he's always wanted. He wants the authority of God. Well, he, he lost that. He was kicked out of heaven. He lost it the, when Jesus was nailed to the cross and rose again on the third day and defeated death. So what's he got left? He's got here now. So what he can do here now is seize the authorities that have the sword. How many millions of people died in the 20th century? Was that of God? That was because... The enemy understands what the value of authority to steal, kill, and destroy. Our mission, if we love people, and I'll tell you pastors, I've challenged pastors all over the country on this very simple thing. You tell me you love people, I'll tell you you don't. If you're not leading in this area of asserting the standards of justice being wielded in our government for for righteous causes to protect the innocent, their life, their freedom, and their property, (laughs) and when you have it in your means to do something about it, that's not love. You call it what you want, but that's not love. <clears throat> because the fact of it is, it is within our power. It is within our authority. We are the government in this country. And what that means for us is if we love God and if we love people, truly, then we will not be silent on making sure that this very very critical area of temporal ministry is being done wisely and rightly, but it's doing it for the right reasons. And so it's not about Honestly, it's not about any single issue. It's not about a candidate. It's not about a party. It's about is his standard going to be, is this, is this sword going to be used for his purposes? So, and then the final thing is pastors, I realized along the way, because I can always find a, a pastor who's willing to charge hell with a squirt pistol. I mean, you know, God's got a remnant and they're out there and you're out there and that's, and you're among that remnant. So pastors, what we realized, we had to go lock arms because here's the thing, one of my favorite historical uh, battles, I love, I love military history and all those things, is the Battle of Tours. Anybody remember? the with the Battle of Tours in 715. It's where the, the Moors, Muslims of that era, and that day, were sweeping up through uh, from Africa, conquering everything in front of them, coming across to the Middle East and through Spain, and now we're entering up what we now is part of southern France. Charles Martel, known as the Hammer, long before Tom DeLay, was the illegitimate son, and actually the grandfather of Charlemagne, was already, he had already begun to develop what was historically the first organized full-time army uh, in place. Most of the time they still that era still fought with the, the peasant armies, gathered them all up and, and go, right? But he had actually been training and equipping, they realized that if they were going to stop this horde of of cavalry-mounted moors, they had to to use a different approach. So they they engaged one of the old-style tactics that used by the Roman legions called the phalanx, the hollow square, and improved it, and then picked the ground. And they picked a long hill at at Tours, so the moors had to come uphill for several miles on the horseback in an open field, and then come against these seven, eight-foot shields that were locked together. So there's an impenetrable wall of metal, these shields, these soldiers locking shields together in this hollow square that could just rebuff these lances. And at the same time, they didn't end around and went into their camp and destroyed the tin from behind. But, but they decimated the Moors and stopped them at that point and saved Western Europe. What if they had not stood? What if they had not succeeded? What if they had not used the right tactics and methods on this? What if the Moors and the Muslims had swept up as they had the rest of it, and, and, and uh, France and, and Brittany and these other nations had all been conquered? Our point is every every age and every era has had its form of that. And and, and now's our time. We're not arguing about whether boys are boys and girls are girls. We have. The sword of Romans 13 being used all over this country, not just in Houston we now all over America, California's one of the worst, but they're not it's, it's all the way from the left coast to the east coast the, 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 the schools are being used, the government schools are being used, public policies being passed, cities are passing ordinances that are punishing, we, we have a great supreme court victory, but folks it was just a you know, it was a a, a good victory but just a, just a, that, a battle in the war And and here's the underlying issue of all of it, is that if the the pulpits don't fire up and proclaim the truth, they inside our walls to to equip and energize. And this is the book that you got before you, is that, folks, we realize most Christians are ignorant of what the scripture says about all the major issues that are on Fox News. And and they're hearing and talking about over the water cooler. They really don't know what scripture says about immigration, about national defense, uh, sometimes even about Israel. But uh, lots of these other issues that are swirling about us, that God has a word for all of it. So we're asking pastors, saying, "Guys, use this as a tool, and let's start better equipping our folks." Number one, to make sure we are better engaged to go out there on everything from social media to the marketplace and speak to these issues, bring direct, bring truth, bring hope. And the the the, the video that we prepared. Uh, that would like to, all, all, if you're a pastor and you're here today, uh, we want to just offer this to you as a gift from the Pastor Council. So you'll you'll just take a copy of that. Uh, for non-pastors, we offer we offer it at twenty dollars. But we realized that the story had to be told because most of the nation only knew about the Sermon of Venus, and just because it's what blew up all over the world. But that just happened as one little snapshot of a much bigger war we had been. Uh, the, the service subpoenas came along when we had to file a lawsuit against the city of Houston because they took they basically declared declared the signatures, the petitions we had submitted to be invalid. They just broke the law. The, city, the mayor and the, and the legal or the city attorney who had no jurisdiction over over the validation of signatures, uh, just simply broke the law. We spent a year in court, two trips to the Texas Supreme Court, six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in legal fees, just to win the right to vote back to get it to the ballot. Which we did, and God gave us the victory, of twenty-two points over the enemy, and and that was all because this very simple thing: we, the pastors, stood, they stood together, and they stayed the course, and God did the rest. And truly, I asked our attorney when I went to follow when I when I asked the, 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 our leadership team, "Do you guys want to file the lawsuit, or are we just going to quit? Because that's our choice." And there was no hesitation whatsoever. The pastor said, no, we gotta go, we gotta stand. And so I called a friend of mine who I'd worked with before, who's the best election law attorney in the state of Texas, named Andy Taylor, a strong Christian. I said, okay, Andy, let's go. What do you think this is gonna cost us? Because, by the way, this is not one of those pro bono religious liberties things that these other organizations will handle. This is an election law issue. So we had to pay for it, I asked And he said, oh, probably about 100,000 to get to trial. I don't know about you but I'm still a country boy where $100,000 is a lot of money and I I gulped and said okay well I don't know where that's going to come from but we're, but God's going to provide it and the team said yes so we're going to go if anybody would have told me that day that that hundred was going to grow to $650,000 I, dis- I wouldn't be here I, I would have disappeared I'd be, I'd be somewhere back up in Washington State so far on the woods you'd be able to find me I didn't have that kind of faith I just didn't I'll admit that straight up um, but you know what? by the time we won the second victory at the Supreme Court to get to the ballot language right and went to the ballot, every legal bill was paid. And and 60% of those funds came out of our churches and most in our major churches. And this is the one thing that was so powerful in all of this. God used this one story to show so much. One of which was, because I'd heard for years in Houston, if only Second Baptists just get their people out to vote, you could take over everything, right? pastors all know better than that because you know in a city of a million registered voters even Second Baptists, which in their you know numbers of 50 or 60,000 whatever number one huge amounts don't live in the city limits uh, when, And actually when they ran their numbers they actually had a total of about 20,000 households that actually could vote in the city well again not, not a numbers guy but a million twenty thousand you need more what this showed was that not any one church, no matter how large, could have carried this battle by themselves, or any battle. Number two, that every church, no matter how small, had a role. We had hundreds of churches all over the city gathering no signatures. And I mean, some that I didn't know about for, for a long time. I mean, I'm still hearing about Just that They were doing the work, but there was all the dynamics of minority churches and our black pastors that led the charge of destroying the mayor's Hijacking the LGBT hijacking of discrimination, just simply took it apart, and they and they they never recovered from it uh, because they couldn't. And uh, when you have an 86-year-old civil rights era Jim Crow era inner-city Democrat black pastor that stands up and says, "Don't you dare call this discrimination!" I know what discrimination looks like. I was uh, th- th- based on a skin color and based on a people, and not on a behavior, not on a lifestyle. In fact, you're a privileged class, and just call them straight out. We did that over and over again, and they had no answer because it was true. And God used the different elements of this team and their voices and their their backgrounds. Let me just tell you this one thing about the Houston Five: when the when the media exploded on this, I mean, literally, just I I, I, I didn't see this coming. so how smart I am. Uh, our attorney called and he said, "Hey." He sent me over the notice of subpoena. Those of you who can, you haven't been subpoenaed yet, um, if there's a process, they have to the notice. The, the, they have to send a notice of subpoena to your law, to your legal counsel, and then they send the subpoena. Well, we got the notice of subpoena that they were coming. He said, he told me, and he emailed those over to me, and I kind of looked at it and was like, "What's well, this?" You know, okay, that's just the mayor being the mayor. I totally blew it off. So uh, we talked about it a couple days later, and he said, "Well." he was representing us on the main lawsuit, he said he said probably you need to have somebody else step in to help you on this. So I contacted Alliance Defending Freedom, that we work work with all the time, and sent them over to them, and they jumped in and, and said, yeah, we'll take this. And so they represented the five of us pro bono. And uh, and of course, when they did send the actual subpoenas, um, there's one key, comical note on that. There's actually a pastor, David Welch at uh, Bear Creek Community Church in Houston. It's in the city limits. I'm not. He got my subpoena. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I still owe him lunch, but we haven't, we haven't connected up yet. But when well, they sent the subpoenas, Alliance a Defending Freedom the stepped in, represented mm-hmm. us, filed the motions to quash, to reject the subpoenas, and then sent out a national press release. Okay. No big deal, right? Well, my world turned upside down the next day because, as you know, I mean, it just... We start our phone being the meltdown. I got calls from BBC London, um, places all over the country, all over the world. It hit a nerve, and the fact of the matter is, it hit a nerve. God had ordained this at the right time. This, you remember, this is October 2014, right before the election that year, and the evangelical vote was kind of lagging a little bit. There really wasn't any great. There wasn't. This is was a you know midterm election, not anything you know great to be too excited about. It sparked the vote nationwide, and they estimated cost the Democrats probably three or four <clears throat> seats. Now, totally not the purpose of this, but the, what it really what it did was all across the nation, and even across the world, God took this little incident, lifted it up, and said, Hey, this is kind of what this looks like when you lose control. And the enemy gets control of the sword. They don't have any respect for the church, they don't even fear God, and they will come after you. They subpoenaed 17 different categories of, of information texts, emails, sermon notes, sermon materials, all of it. So that, in the midst of that, I sat down to say, okay, well, I, I keep, keep, keep asked, who are the, the media would ask, who are the five? And so I said, I, I need to write out a little narrative, a little bio piece that I can just send out because this uh, just takes too much time. So I did. I sat down and just wrote a little brief descriptive of each one of the five. And and all of a sudden, the Lord just opened my eyes, and I looked at this, and I just was just again, I was just stunned. And in fact I, I, I turned to what, uh, one of the guys and I said well, look, they just picked on the Avengers and here's why yeah. Hernan Castano was brought up by his family as a child from, from Colombia to escape the communist insurgencies and Colombian drug wars to America and has been pastoring here for 30 years and have been a fighter for freedom and, and out there doing the work of the kingdom. Con Nguyen pastor of Vietnamese Baptist Church was one of the original Vietnamese boat people escaped communist Vietnam at the fall to watch most of his family die to come to America for freedom. Pastoring here for 30 years, pastors all over the world. Magda Hermida, she and her husband, Jose, had escaped Castro's communist Cuba in the 60s to come to America for freedom. Been ministering here and all over the world. Steve Riggle, he and his wife, Becky, as young pastors on a trip to the Philippines had been caught in a prison uprising and were stabbed and shot, should have been dead. There's no reason for them to have survived this. Steve was stabbed like 17 times, and Becky was shot, and, and they were left for dead. God healed them, raised them up to an international ministry. He's had the Grace International as a mega church of 50,000. his influence all over the world. I'm going, wow. And then the rock hit me, then I got to meet. I thought, can we, can we just talk about the four? system isn't any good, you know. There's what, what I don't have anything to compare to that. It was just, it was always kind of just, um, disquieting for a moment, and then God got me past myself and showed me what He was doing. I'm every, I'm, I'm your every guy, I'm just, I'm us, I'm, I'm every person here. Um, just your ordinary guy. My, my family came over to, from England in 1689. Um, they've far as I know and you can track most of them fought in most of the wars since then and what God showed we took this five and by the way the other two that were subpoenaed because there were, there were two others that were subpoenaed but they were the plaintiffs in the lawsuit our, our lawsuit against the city the reason they didn't get the attention because they were there was at least some legal basis for them to be subpoenaed there wasn't any for ours but those were our two lead black pastors F.N. Williams and Max Miller so we had two blacks two Hispanics an Asian and two Anglos On this. You tell me what God's doing in all this, right? He was lifting this up for the world to see, saying, This is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what happens when the church stands together. And it it took down the might machine. And in fact, the mayor of Houston was asked after it was all over, the dust had settled, and and God had given us the victory. She was interviewed on a national TV program. And the reporter, who I'm sure is in, in Siberia somewhere now, Uh, Because there's no way they're going to survive asking this one, and made it on a major network. Said, Mayor, you're the the first openly lesbian mayor elected to a major city in the Bible Belt. You had the legal department, you had the major corporations, the business community, you had the media, uh, you had the president of the United States, and you lost. What happened? And and, but they were right. And her response was. They took the back, they took the message and controlled it, and we could never get it back. And the reason that is so powerful is because how many times does that happen when you're dealing with the LGBT and the radical left in a major media controversial issue? And I believe it's because the pastors controlled the message, not just the conservatives, not just pro-family, but the pastors came into this together and united with a commitment. To keep the balance between principle and people. We never fell prey to the angry, harsh, undermining rhetoric that, it, that, that caused us to demean people. We focused on the principles and the issue over and over and over again. Never attacked the mayor. Didn't attack the LGBT. In fact, one of the greatest pictures I, I have is of p- the city hall ch- uh, foyer outside the chambers packed with pastors and LGBT activists in red shirts all together talking and pastors laying hands and praying with these LGBT activists. Minister to them, inviting them out for coffee. Okay. That doesn't happen in most of your political <laughs> dynamics in these kind of settings because there's too much tensions and there's too much anger, there's too much other things. And so I'm I'm saying that to say that shows what happens when the pastors leave and the spiritual authority and power and the balance and the reason and the compassion and the, all that, that comes along with the calling, we bring that to the public square God goes with you and his anointing, I've watched that anointing for pastors coming forward in these arenas and speaking and bringing his truth to city councils, to school boards, and you've done it here, but here's, the, here's our question as we go forward as pastors, they always expect us to quit and go away, they always do it's just, in fact, heard, so of you heard Jerry Falwell say this years ago. He said, the thing about Christians is when they win, they quit. When they lose, they quit. They just quit. And we had a, one of the leading African-American pastors in Sacramento a meeting we had some years ago say this, and he he'd confronted the Speaker of the House on an issue, and the Speaker, who happened to be a friend of his, looked at him and said, Pastor, I don't give it a blankety blank what you think. I don't, because the pastors who think like you don't stay together you're not organized, and your people don't vote. you set, match. So the way we redeem, the way we can influence and turn the culture back, bring truth, and, and whether it's the libraries, whether it's the school boards, whether it's the city councils, is that we build the army first, is that the army is the army of the body of Christ. And that's when the community sees the pastors out on the streets, not just in, in our chambers. When they see us out together, standing together, where they know they're not just talking to Mark, they're talking to everybody. They can't attack one guy. And that was the thing of the beauty of this, too. They tried all the normal tactics to demonize. It never stuck, because they couldn't pin it on one pastor, even an Ed Young. So when we're united, we're together, and we have an ongoing, permanent, consistent presence of a team around the, the cause of Christ and, and his word, then God's favor goes with it. We, and I tell you, Texas right now, we all know this, is in the process of the States. And places like Granbury are essential. And I want you to know that my commitment is, and our calling, we just started in Houston for no other reason just to show all the big boys wrong. Because I had talked to many National Evangelical leaders, and I said, somebody needs to help organize pastors, reach the pastors, serve the pastors. And they all told, Every one of them told me the same thing. And they said, Dave, I've given up on pastors. And God wouldn't let me, because I knew the difference it would make when pastors do this. So I want to thank you and commend you and honor you for your standing leadership. And our commitment to you is we're here to serve you. Uh, So anything we can do. And the other thing we're doing is we're trying to do city by city, community by community across the state of Texas. So because we've got to be together as a voice here. We go to the legislature whether we deal with things and we can also help one another. You do things here that we can learn from and all that. So thank you. I appreciate all of you. And then again, our prayers go out to you. One last thing, um, again, so you'll, you know, not just take a copy of this, uh, copy of this pictorial history. I'll share with uh, you, and then I'm again, I'm always at your disposal uh, to, to come up and just to order, answer questions and get provide anything you need. But uh, I thank God, and, and we're we're I'll be always happy to make this drive coming up for the beautiful backwood back roads of Texas to come up here and get away from the, the beast of Houston. Thank you.